I'm Justin Karras. I'm Farah Khan. And this is House Nine's Art and Humanity Podcast. In this week's episode, we speak with WWF Canada's Quebec director, Sophie Paradis, on everyday approaches to the climate crisis. Speaking with love and empathy and leading by example, Sophie welcomes challenging conversations over preaching to the converted. She also has an obsession with our city-dwelling animal neighbors, especially raccoons. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So today we are joined by Sophie Paradis, uh, the Quebec director for WWF Canada. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, hi, Justin. Hi, Farah. It's really a pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. We've had the pleasure of working with you before on uh, one of WWF Canada's campaigns for um, a shoreline cleanup project. Um, can you introduce us to what you do at WWF? Uh, so I'm working for WWF Canada since Five years now, so uh, yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, to stay that long. Yeah, yeah thank you. <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm in charge of all uh, French communication, of course. I'm the, the also the, the French spokesperson for WWF Canada, but I'm also in charge of all conservation projects for uh, Quebec province. So it can be this huge uh, marine protected areas in the St. Lawrence Gulf, but also uh, more little local and urban in Montreal, uh, like urban biodiversity conservation or stuff like that. So uh, we have a little team. Uh, we have one uh, specialist in urban biodiversity, Steve, and I have, of course, one full-time translator because there are so many documents that my colleagues in English are producing. It's amazing. <laughs> oh, my God, a new project every day. And it's always interesting. So our job is also to, uh, to let them... Uh, uh, being known by the, the French audience, not only in Quebec, it, coast to coast in Canada. Yeah, there's a lot of French communities in Canada that people might not realize are there. If you're not from Canada, like there's people all, all throughout the country that speak French too. And so it is really important to provide access to those projects yeah, exactly. In Yellowknife, for example, who knew that in Yellowknife there is such a huge immigration from France? Oh, and wow. there's a new little community in Yellowknife. So, uh, yeah, French people are everywhere, actually, and different audience to, to, to reach out. Mm -hmm. As we were setting up the mics and getting ready for the <laughs> for the interview, you mentioned that you were in journalism before. Oh, yeah, in my previous life. What was this previous life that you had and how did you transition from that to being in the environmental sector? So, well, when I was younger, I won't say young because I still think that I'm a little bit young, even <laughs> in my 40s. So, <laughs> uh, well, I wanted to save the planet. So uh, by reporting and news and I you know you have those doctors uh, without frontiers mm -hmm. so you have the same in, in, in for journalism so it's like uh, reporters without frontiers and I wanted to be that 
person uh, doing reports in French for CBC, for example. So I did that a little uh, in India, in Honduras, uh, a little bit in Morocco also. But it's uh, and it was beautiful. I mean, I, 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 my job was to um, to share great stories or to 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 share a local culture or political culture where I was. Uh, it's just because. Um, with time, uh, I worked two years in the North Shore of Quebec, and all the issues regarding environment, so Northern Quebec, like Bécomo, Sétil, uh, uh, Natashkwan, uh, so there's a lot of erosion, mining industry, uh, the St. Lawrence, we don't know that the St. Lawrence is warming up in this far north uh, mm. region, so... Uh, Slowly, I get just more into nature than humans because sometimes humans can be annoying. <laughs> I, I, I'm joking. Slash part of the problem. <laughs> so I do love humans, you know. <laughs> Selected humans are fine. Yeah, some, yeah, and they produce wine. So, <laughs> but uh, the thing is, yeah, slowly, yeah, I, I get more involved into uh, environmental issues and problem, and you know, being an ecologist. It's also protecting humans. I'm just using another way to to protect our house, actually. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I was a freelancer, so I quit it, and I just get more involved in the Green Party, for example, and mm -hmm. uh, another angle named CPAS, Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society. So uh, it's it's very conservation, but traditional conservation work and. My, my big step was at the city of Longueuil, where I was in charge of all the sustainable development, strategic planning, and you work with everybody, policemen, who, uh, firemen, uh, you know, all those people that I, I wasn't connected before, so uh, connected to before. So, uh, yeah, and now I'm at WWF, so it's, it's quite uh, unusual uh, trajectoire, if I may say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's who I am, and that's why uh, I care about uh, human and nature. Yeah, so it's just <laughs> following interest and following what feels right. I guess I wondered if you were trying to work towards environmental good through journalism and then maybe hit some sort of a realization that like it was skewed or biased or somehow like that wasn't the way that you could make a difference and then that's how you transition to something else but it sounds like it was more like oh I'm just getting drawn to this other kind of area mm. well every well e even for each of you I mean where you are today it's also because when you were younger it was something that it was part of you for me I, I was born in a little village named Chateau Richer uh, on the St. Lawrence River and I was young and I was just grabbing the, 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 the garbage and my father was teaching me how to be responsible in the boreal forest so it's just it was just at the end uh, um, a way to be and as you are creative Farah and it's part of you it's in your DNA so uh, you are just implementing what you're doing uh, well what you are and that's what I'm happy to do today yeah yeah it's really beautiful so we mentioned you know the St. Lawrence warming we you're in the environmental sector obviously the elephant in the room is to use an animal reference um, <laughs> is the climate crisis and um, here we are in 2020 with, I think, a growing awareness of the climate crisis and the fact that there are a lot of political forces that are not addressing it to people's satisfaction. 
Um, in your opinion, how did we get to this point when there have been environmental groups and ecologists and activists kind of crying out for some sort of change and they've been doing this for decades? Well, it's a big question, an excellent one, but I think we all know the, the answers. Uh, we didn't care before. Uh, we were living in this uh, planetary utopia that everything was green and blue, and even even here, uh, even it's worst here in Canada. We we get there because it wasn't on au uh, goût du jour. Yeah, I'm saying trendy, the, the, trend of the day. The or? flavor of the day, I the guess. The flavor yeah. of the day. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so even worse than that, I, I was reading some books coming from like the uh, 90th century. People are, were warning, you know, the, the, the political government that, oh, we cannot cut this forest or don't uh, timber this forest. So, well, we are there because we are humans and we need a wall to realize that sometimes we are going too far. And mm -hmm. it's a collective uh, uh, um, weakness that we have, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it seems like there's also people that are trying to spread misinformation about climate change and we're in this place where 99% of scientists or 99.9% .9 of scientists <laughs> agree this is a reality and yet there are still people especially people that have political platforms that are sharing the information of the 0.01 scientist that is probably paid or lobbied or whatever I don't really know that well but maybe you know better than I do why this this um, movement kind of happens. Well, I, I don't know better. We just share the same information. I mean, uh, so there's multiple ways of climate denials. Uh, you have those people who doesn't have the information, who doesn't want to, to know, or who getting information from, you know, uh, some medias that they didn't look a lot or research enough. But that's okay. I mean, I don't mind having a climate denier like that because it's good for us. Even if you're a scientist, you need sometimes to be a little bit challenged. So that's okay. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. And you also have all those climate climate deniers because it's not good for the business because when you have a, a mining company or a oil and gas company you don't want people to tell you that you're not doing the good thing and it's bad for the climate so what you're doing is saying the reverse or saying that we will create jobs we will it's good for the economy or we can cap the carbons and stock it you know there's multiple ways to do uh to do stuff or uh, this system that we are in capitalism and uh, so yeah uh, some of yeah so you have the, the information uh, you have people who's not benefit who doesn't benefit from uh, telling the truth about the climate mm -hmm. so uh, and it's not an easy question because situation because climate change is very big it's hard to get i mean it's warming it's uh, snowing a day and the other day it's raining you know it's it's hard to get uh for people who doesn't work in environmental uh, uh domain of fields or who aren't scientists and scientists as also this habit it's okay but mm. to overprove stuff so sometimes it takes time sometimes they are very cautious with, with what they are saying so 
for sure what we know now is yes you said it it's more than 99% of the uh, scientific um, community community thank you <laughs> uh, who are saying like okay we are in a in the decline of species we we are living the worst uh, uh, the worst uh, warming uh, era and we have ten less than 10 years to to fix it so uh, imagine that you never heard about that and you are a business and you're uh, it's it's yeah. quite shocking so you are in denial yeah. yeah and as someone that has like a good deal of knowledge about the environment about the climate crisis do you ever encounter people that are climate deniers and have to convince them or have to engage with them and what do you say uh every day actually uh by our social media or just when i'm giving conference and that's the people that i love the most because you know my audience or the people who understand what i'm saying or are just excited is great mm. uh, they will share the good la bonne parole, la bonne nouvelle, the good news, the climate, uh, the people who are not convinced, who are asking questions, and my job is to just tell them, like, you see, it's simple, and demonstrate that it's possible to do something great altogether. It's my favorite time. It's really something that I, I love the most. So uh, when you explain it with facts and You take time. Uh, it doesn't deserve me if I am angry at people. Right. They will just, uh, uh, how can I say that? They won't receive my message well. Yeah. So it's just like talking with love and empathy and good, you know, good example. And it can take times, but we are right. So eventually we will win. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, and I love your approach that, you know, instead of trying to preach to the converted, because that doesn't matter. Like you said, we all are in agreement, so you don't really need to talk to us about this stuff. But going out into the world and speaking with people who actually need to be converted. Yeah, and talking to a bank who look at you and they are not, because we're working with so many different people, mm -hmm. that's a good thing too. I, uh, businesses uh, or groups, it can be just activist group, First Nation, Inuits and businesses, we are working with everybody. So we have no choice to, to work all together to make those things change. So uh, we are all together in that that yeah. you know facing that problem so it won't benefits anybody if we are not working and to fix it can you share any particular stories like maybe it was a bigger corporation where you had a conversation and they were like oh actually we are going to change what we're doing uh, or even if it's just an individual well it's more about individual mm -hmm. because taking the example of the great shoreline cleanup mm -hmm. that you work with, with us on the nature some plastic campaign what a great campaign it was uh super creative and great for our audience so uh you know people are always saying to us like why are we just grabbing or cleaning the shoreline why we don't work in the the, the, the first thing consuming well Yes, but we also need to show people that our consumption is out of, uh, it's um, out, not out of order. Out of control? Out of control. <laughs> so uh, we have a lot of, uh, of critics about we are cleaning, but we are not stopping the, 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 the production. Well, yeah, you're right. 
we are cleaning, but we also work with like Loblaws or other people to to reduce the the production or the the the, the packing. But this is our role. There are so many people working. Uh, you know, we can refer to other groups working on reducing our eco design for products. You know, I don't like saying that we all have all the answers. No, there are so many people working there. Uh, grassroots groups and universities that it's a big puzzle where we can all work together on that. But yeah, we receive a lot of critics about yeah cleaning the shoreline but not working in mm-hmm. before. Yeah, so that's the most the, the, the most frequent one that we have. Right. I mean, but it makes sense though. I mean, it feels, it has to be a multi-pronged approach, right? You have to clean the shit that's out there. And as you were saying, there are other groups who are speaking with other, uh, you know, working at all the different levels to, yeah. to fix things. I did notice recently that um, at uh, Pravigo, uh, at the fish counter, um, that they're wrapping the fish in paper, oh, which nice. I found was very cool. That's nice, you see. And the more people are sensible, the more the, 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 the businesses will change their practice right. because they want to keep those clients. So uh, some, everybody, all, not everybody, but a lot of people are asking me, what can I do? What can I do? I cannot you know, change a business or the system. Well, yes, you can change the system by just asking, uh, can I have local food? Can I have local fishes? Can I have, you know, uh, or wrap less, dear Provigo? Or So mm. the more we ask, the more things are, uh, the more people who are asking for changes, it will happen because businesses as... They have a stake in it, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. There's this, I mean, there is this debate about, individual versus corporate action um there's i think at the beginning let's say of like this heightened awareness of climate change there was a bit more emphasis on adjusting individual action as a way to improve um our consumption uh in order to protect the environment um and now there's been a few articles that have come out in the last like five years um, about how this is kind of a neoliberal concept and corporations are really the ones that should step up, adjust their production methods in order to avoid worsening the climate crisis um, or you know, pay some sort of carbon tax or whatever. We don't have to get into that, but I guess no action is bad, right? But how can we put pressure on corporations to do their due part? Because it almost feels like corporations have the benefit of being uh, kind of legally seen as individuals, but without the responsibility of the individual. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. This big question, like one vote, one person, one, one, you know, an Asha vote. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, it's my own personal position on that. But uh, every individual are yes a citizen, so we have the, the responsibility to vote. So this is an influencer to government. But we also work somewhere. Uh, you're not only like someone who consumes stuff. You also work. I don't know. Uh, an insurance company or in a big business company, you have a role to influence, and you're not always in the, the bottom line. Some some of the people that I've uh, that I've met are big 
decision makers. So, but they also are individual. I'm playing, and I, I I'm, I'm always considering that because corporation are a bunch of humans, mm. are a bunch of individual, and they have kids or they have, you know, a house or a family or whatever. They are humans. If you see that, uh, for me, it's easier than just address the climate change problem to a corporation. Mm. Yes, we can have, of course, um, communication or statements saying those activities from Nestle, I'm, I'm saying Nestle, but it can be anything, uh, are bad for the environment. Uh, well, yes, it has a huge impact on the, the on this, but the success that we are seeing with WWF, it's always um, working with those individuals within company and the change is it's happening more deeply uh, and not only for a green washing statement from businesses. So uh, that's, that's the way that I prefer to work. Now the problem is that we don't have a lot of time and it's time to do it. Yeah. And, but the businesses are are aware of this. Uh, I will say like most of them that I'm working with are looking for solution and uh, to, to, to make things better. It can, it can be by making money from it. I don't have a problem. You know, mm. uh, we're not obligated to be, uh, you choose your way of life, but reducing, reducing, being more responsible is the message that we, 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 we share with them and we have to, to promote with them. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's how we work. And yes, uh, I mean, for example, I, I was on a panel the other day and it's really not my expertise about um, software and technology and the global footprint of software. And all the Netflix that we are watching, all this phone things that we are watching is an individual. And the GHG uh, footprint, uh, emission from the software and the use that we have from uh, electronical stuff, it's more the, it's the double of the, the footprint of the, the flight industry. Really? Yes, it is. So what? the yeah, the green gas emission from flights or from aviation is like two, three, four percent of the, uh, the, the the global green gas emission, and the software is four to six. So it's enormous and it's increasing every day because we are on our phones. We want this five G thing. We want this new computer. It's the, the 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 gas emission, the green gas emission, but it's also the products. So yes, Apple and all those guys has a lot to do. Uh, I'm not working with them, but it's an individual thing. We are plugged on our phones, and it's important to just realize sometimes that yeah, maybe I can just disconnect and read a book. <laughs> wow, you really blew my mind. I've been chatting with my brother. He um, travels. Um, from North America to Asia a few times a year and he just feels so guilty about it. He's like, oh my God, I need to stop flying, but I can't because of my work. Um, so I don't know if this will make him feel better or worse. <laughs> it's like when you're going to the grocery. Right. You have to read, you have to check, you have to just, it's okay to take the fly, to, mm. to take the plane. Uh, but if you're going to Toronto, maybe the train is a better option. Right. It's just, you know, choosing carefully. And yes, sometimes for work, we have to, to travel by plane. But Zoom, 
how many meetings we have by Zoom, mm -hmm. or maybe the green gas emission from Zoom or the ecological footprint from those technology, we have to check to have all the data, all the information to make good decisions. So not everything is black or white. There's yeah. a lot of shade of gray. Yeah. Shades of gray. Yeah, I know. It's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> and it's equally masochistic. <laughs> um, I recently read that cryptocurrencies, like Bitcoin mining and that that industry, like uses as much electricity or energy as like some of the smaller countries in the world. I forget the exact statistic, but that's another technological yeah. reason for greenhouse gas emissions. And when you think about it, it starts feeling so ridiculous. Like, I don't know. It, it just makes me feel really worried and a bit hopeless, to be honest. But <laughs> Yeah, well, eco-anxiety yeah. now, it's a disease. It's well-known uh, well, well now, but you're right. There's still are bad humans, you know, people who, who are greedy and just want money and that, that does exist. Uh, but if we are just looking at this side of the, way, of the, 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 the money or the, 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 the coin, uh, there's so many great things that people are doing at the same time. Uh, just Montreal, we, we, we are the most dynamic city regarding urban agriculture and you know planting trees or forestry or we the citizens are very, very active. so uh, it's also um, you know uh, managing or reducing those bad boys uh, who are uh, trying to bitcoins uh, <laughs> the planet or stuff like that. <laughs> Um, Farah mentioned a project that you were involved in called the Daylighting Rivers Project. And this seems like also an initiative for protecting ecosystems within urban environments, right? Can you introduce that project to us a little bit? I think it might be a bit uplifting. <laughs> also, you look so excited. The moment he said that, your face <laughs> lit up. <laughs> yeah, it can be very depressing talking about the bad side of, yeah. uh, of, of environment, but I'm, I'm a positive person, so yes, there is hope. <laughs> so, daylighting, well, uh, so the project is Blue Montreal. Um, three years ago, uh, I was... Uh, I love water, and I'm, I was always wondering, we are on an island. There is rivers somewhere, as everybody knows about the Rivière Saint-Pierre, uh, close to the Turco Echangeur. So this one is is canalized, it's in a pipeline. But um, So I, I've been to this uh, conference from a, a teacher of l'Université uh, de Montréal, Valérie Mao. Now she's back in Belgium, so that's that's sad we lost her, but uh, uh, so, and she, she, she worked with her students on all those ancient rivers of Montreal, those little creek, and it's not, so she dried, and they, they, they did great research about all those ancient rivers. It's super poetic, I was just thrilled, and uh, I just do my research, like where the city or the boroughs as um, have a, a redevelopment project where we can just reopen the 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 the, the, the river and or just recreate the river because what we know uh, well we talk a lot about 
green infrastructures or green space, but the water on the island, it's not something that we talk a lot. So that's why we started to research, uh, to, um, to talk with uh, different uh, public uh, civil servants from, uh, from the city or the boroughs, uh, other specialists from university to just highlight and point where we can work. So we have three uh, sites for now. We did great feasibility studies, uh, and uh, so we chose those three sites um, again because nobody were working on it. Uh, there's a lot of groups in Montreal, but uh, nobody were working there in this area of bringing back rivers and or free the rivers in Montreal. So, uh, and we chose those sites. Yes, I'm coming with the sites. I know mm -hmm. you are waiting. I'm, I'm building the. <laughs> But we chose those sites because they were super urban. They they needed love, like it's no uh, more, not enough green space. Or Outremont, it's such a nice borough, but there's a lot of green space. Uh, it's not the same thing everywhere. So Ville Marie is one of them, uh, close to the Parc uh, de Pont Jacques Cartier. Uh, there's a little river named Rivière uh, Saint Martin, and uh, there's possibility there to bring back this river to open it the uh, Sud-Ouest um, so the uh, Sud-Ouest is from the um, well, Les Changeurs Turco this place, it's huge of concrete but the, uh, the city has in mind to just redevelop a new Parc Nature, so from the Falaise to the St. Lawrence River we want to uh, daylight some part of uh, St. Pierre River but also recreate new urban rivers uh, because it, it's a place where we can do it and the last one is Villeray uh, dans le parc Jarry uh, there's in the middle of the park there's a we, we know that there is uh, ancient rivers uh, the name is uh, Le Ruisseau Provo and uh, each of them has great story great stories um, it's very it's very a fun and a very inspiring project because people feel connected to water they want to learn more they want to learn the First Nation story or what it was before uh, we decided decided to, uh, to put it in a pipe. So uh, that is Blue River, the, the project that we uh, are working on with Université de Montréal for now. And it's going well. Uh, we receive a lot of support from uh, groups, from citizens, from uh, even from, uh, we receive uh, a support from uh, Intact Insurance because uh, the importance of this project is to build the resilience of, the, of our country. In 2017 and in 2019, we had those huge flooding in Montreal, but it also in southern Quebec. Um, and we have to address those problems. We have to uh, to be more resilient by living infrastructure. We call it living infrastructures. It's like green and blue infrastructures where the biodiversity uh, can grow, but it's also natural infrastructures that can help us to, to be more resilient. So actually, for now, Montreal is not a resilient uh, island. Uh, we are very fragile to flooding, to, uh, to heavy rain, and the decline of the species uh, is very, very, very uh, important. Um, so that's why we are working on this project that um, is Blue Montreal. So it, nothing is confirmed. 
confirm yet. We did our work. We are still in um, pour parler, in nego not negotiation. We are still meeting the city of Montreal, different experts to sign up. Like, okay, what are the next steps? Are we doing it? Are we, you know, um, it's such an inspiring thing that we have to sign out on this with the city. How, how many of these ancient rivers do you think are on this island? 80% of the are, of them are uh, are just buried. Uh, but are there like tens or hundreds? Like, do oh my you have God, an idea even? Good question. Uh, I, I, I don't know because we are working with l'Université de Montréal on prediction. It's like mm -hmm. old, 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 old maps. Okay. So uh, I don't know how many. I will check. I will give you the answer. But it's, it's more than 10, actually. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, yeah, maybe hundreds of them. So, uh, but it's small. It's not always huge river. You have many models of rivers. Um, you mentioned that by bringing some of these rivers back to life, I mean some of the effects are, you know, increasing biodiversity. I imagine some of the local species that are native to these areas also can thrive and come back in greater numbers. But it could protect us from flooding too. It could protect the resilience of the structure of the city? Yeah, because, uh, well, what we were doing 100 years ago, it's, it was like building parkings or streets for the cars, and the water doesn't know uh, where to go now. When we have uh, heavy rain, and it's beginning to be more and more often uh, with the climate change, uh, for example, if we take the example of Ville-Marie uh, from the streets Saint Sherbrooke to uh, to um, Ontario, there's a little pond in Petitcote, a mm -hmm. little hill uh, close to the uh, Parc La Fontaine, and when we have those episodes of heavy rain, all this area is flooded. Mm. So it's really like the water look to go somewhere, but it cannot go somewhere mm. because we don't have the the the, the on site in situ the the, the nature to to to, to capture the water it's just concrete and houses and street and oh maybe a little green alley but that's it that's uh, so by bringing back with those ancient uh, ancient rivers tracé or uh, of course it's it's more than just bringing back rivers we are looking at the watershed and you know some ecological stuff that we are doing but when we are looking at the maps and how the water the comp uh, how the water behave, we can just, okay, we can, we can build uh, or bring back um, landscaping uh, for the river to, to manage the water. And in the case of daylighting, it's just reopening the pipe mm. and the water will go to, uh, instead of in the streets or in, you know, you will have by nature uh, a first captation, first caption of mm -hmm. the water and not going into the house or into the streets or into the, uh, so it's, it's using the, the, the land to cap yeah. nature. That makes so much sense. And it's not, I, like, I didn't really wrap my head around it at first, but of course there's like water would have moved in a certain way for maybe even thousands of years. I don't know. I'm not a geologist. <laughs> I don't know the way that the land has shifted, but but it does have like this ideal behavior in order to keep moving. And it's the same way that if you are make, you know, planting uh, a plant in a pot, you have to al allow for a certain type of drainage or else the plant might get sick. Whatever. So water like 
has this incredible ability to provide life to so many different types of organisms, but if it's not allowed to roam the way that it has to roam, it can also destroy a lot of the things that we build. And it can even, you know, cause a fungal overgrowth or whatever. But like <laughs> mm -hmm. that, I mean, yeah, it's like, of course, we have to let it behave the way it needs to behave for everything to be okay. <laughs> it doesn't, it makes so much sense. And it's the same with urban biodiversity. It's something new, actually, because, you know, urban areas, we weren't talking about urban areas like 100 years ago, but urban biodiversity is something new. And we have more and more conflicts between species, coyotes, raccoons, and humans, because, you know, we have to live all together because they don't have enough space. So it's another way by greening and blueing the territory to also manage those great relation between uh, those uh, species that we, we, they are uh, their home now it's it's the uh, it's the it's the city mm -hmm. and it's funny because uh, we are very well I, I, maybe i can just add it about uh, the first nation part but it's funny because one of the hotspots that we uh, are looking for blue montreal it's the rivière saint pierre it was a very hot spot to to rest and to exchange between first nation at that time iroquois uh, mohawk uh, abenaki a lot of them were using this hotspot to just rest and it's funny because The, the history showed us that when Maisonneuve came into Montreal, he wanted to... to um, claim? Claim, yes, exactly. Like, oh, here is where I will find Montreal. So Montreal is the old Montreal, this area, mm -hmm. Ville-Marie. Um, the First Nation told him at that time, like, not a good area. Uh, it's, it's a flooding area. Mm -hmm. You cannot just build houses there because each spring or each... Each time you you have this flooded area, but uh, Maisonneuve just the 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 says says that said that he's he planted a cross. Yeah. Oh, you know that. Well, I know I know the story. That's why the cross is on the mountain because. Voila. Yeah. Did you know about this, Farah? No. I the didn't. reason the cross is on my, I I didn't. I mean, I actually didn't know the part where he was warned by First Nations communities like this he area was. is very prone to flooding, and he was like, <laughs> "Oh, it's okay," and like, yeah, I guess he built this um he built a lot of settlements on this land that i guess he was warned were easily flooded then mm -hmm. this great flood came and then he prayed to god if you pr if you will you know make this flood go away then i will devote my life to you and we'll plant a cross in your honor on the highest peak of our new city and <laughs> then the flood dissipated and that's why the mm -hmm. cross is on the mountain still to this day yep I mean, talk about like a colonial symbol, right? Like right. he was, exactly. yeah, <laughs> yeah. And this area, well, now it's not very flooded anymore, but still, it was hundred years ago. We have those ancient uh, old pictures showing that uh, uh, Saint Henri or Verdun, or it was all flooded. Yeah. Mm. Well, good. Thank you, Mr. Mazelneuve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, what you were saying about paying attention to indigenous, uh, you know, folks around the world, um, we were talking about this around the time of the, you know, when the Amazon uh, fires were, uh, or not Amazon fires, well, no, Amazon, and then also in Australia, like, you know, how they were uh, on the news, and we were saying how with the decline of um, 
indigenous populations, there is this rise in, in forest fires because that ancient knowledge of how to control the fires, how to mm -hmm. work with the seasons. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? <laughs> well, it's just showing again that um, First Nation or indigenous are so much connected to the land or to the water or to, to the earth. Uh, than us. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are taking the metro, we are urban. I mean, I know how to program my computer, but I'm a little bit more lost in a forest with a, a bear. Uh, so that, yes, all those examples uh, are showing to us that we have to listen, we have to acknowledge it, and we have to work with them more and more. Because, uh, well, we have a good example of that. In the Arctic, for example, we have um, WWF Canada, we work in the Arctic, we have offices uh, in Iqaluit, and it's very important because we are directly on the land. We do understand that. There's so many people talking about the polar bears, for example, who, you know, let's protect polar bears. Yes, but for what and where and how do we do it? So um, our team uh, over there is uh, working working with Inuit Nation and they are consultant for us. They, and it's all the Inuit people coming and telling us uh, so many stories how to, um, or uh, real knowledge about the land and how we, we can work with it and how we can, we have to protect it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this brings to mind, I, I have um, a friend, she has a lot of knowledge in, in terms of her environmental activism. Her name is Jody Zinner, and she, um, we talked about this statement that a lot of people make, you know, people are the worst. Like, we, mm -hmm. we just, like, we're kind of like a virus, and we just come and extract, and, and she's pointed out to me, and I think this is so powerful, that that's actually a very colonial uh, mindset. This extractive mindset is very colonial, and it's not applicable to indigenous communities because there's a lot of indigenous people that have lived in certain areas of the world for generations and they've only increased biodiversity and only increased the, the health of the land. And so there are ways to do this. It's just this colonial extractive approach that exactly. is the problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, greed factors into it. That's unfortunately, in my opinion, a, an aspect of human nature that no one is, mm. no one can get away from. Like I think uh, an antidote, antidotes to greed can be culturally instilled. And, and in a lot of indigenous cultures, they are. And one of the most powerful ways that it's instilled is a cross-generational view of society. So living in a sense of responsibility to not only your ancestors, but also all of the generations that yeah. will come after you will inherently encourage a kind of protection of the land that you live on. Um, but this individualistic, marketable, capitalistic view of the person, it encourages a kind of greed and extractive approach to life that, that is kind of like a virus. Mm. Yeah. And a lack of responsibility too, because you know, you said that you're beholden to the people who will come after you, but if you're thinking just about yourself, you really stop caring about who's coming next, right? Yeah. Mm. It brings us back to the uh, the adage, no self, no problem, <laughs> which I've been thinking about a lot recently. I feel like it's like a, a modern self-help book title that is like, you know, trying to, I guess, capture the Buddhist, Zen Buddhist like <laughs> approach to life. But, but yeah, like 
I guess if you're less focused on yourself and more on the people around you, then automatically you'll be concerned about the the health of the environment that we're living in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, we have to reconnect to other people, actually, and not only to uh, the screen of our phones. Uh, it's very important. Uh, less is more. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. also something interesting oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that we should apply. Yeah. You were mentioning earlier about um, when we were off mic for a minute about uh, as we've gotten wealthier, you know, as a population, that th- things have started to decline environmentally. Uh, yeah, and I'm sure that it's uh, it will remind everybody uh, their mm-hmm. own story. Uh, my grandparents were more sustainable than me, uh, even if I'm even if my my green uh, my ecological footprint is quite low. But they were, you know, they were poor. Uh, and they were using everything and they were like the less was more and uh, and with the explosion of you know uh, the industrialization and more capacity and more knowledge and that's perfect we have to develop I mean uh, I, I want I want a I don't want the life that my grandmother had with 14 kids it's a lot of people <laughs> in the room. <laughs> 14. It's a lot of people Ouch. to connect with <laughs> to help well, you care about the land. <laughs> you have your own network. <laughs> but, but yes, it's very... Um, yeah, that, so that's where we saw from poverty uh, and less resources and not exploding all the resources and this explosion and the freedom of those. We also... We, we we often say those baby boomers, but it's it's a big big mark in the history that they come in the market and they they they, they spend money and that's the problem. Also, that's where we attach freedom to buying to mm. to get stuff, and it's coming really from this era. I have a new car. I have a car because your grandparents wasn't able to afford a car, so it was really to uh, upgrade our level of. Um, of consuming and it never stopped uh, since then. We mm-hmm. are uh, a fond dans le capitalism. Uh, well, now we are seeing the, 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 the lack or the end, hopefully, of this system. But uh, it, it, yeah, it's very something that we, we can relate on the destruction on, of the nature and the, uh, the over consuming of the nature and our resources as human. Yeah. You can get a more convenient lifestyle, but you're just borrowing from elsewhere. Like, <laughs> mm. you can have like things easier, but actually they'll be much harder down the line. Uh, there's like no way to truly, Mm-mm. I don't know, unless you're aligning yourself with nature fully. But it just feels like the way that we live is like a constant war against nature in a lot of ways. I I feel it here in the winter too, like just. Like, with every major snowfall, it's like, okay, like, let's get this cavalry of of giant machinery to, like, take right. all of the snow away so we can keep the city, like, going. And, like, I know it's naive, but I'm like, why can't we just, like, shut it down just for, like, a couple months? Just shut down this <laughs> the downtown core. Obviously, I don't... I haven't thought through how this would work. Uh, well, actually, it's not that crazy. When I was working at the city of Longueuil, we were looking at, the, we call it the white streets, uh-huh. and you let the snow. You, you, of course, you, you for, for the security, you have to dam it a little, but not as much as we are doing that, using salt. And we never, we never uh, think about that, but... 
the salt is polluting all the St. Lawrence River and the, 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 the underwater... Uh, like a water reserve, like under... Exactly, so with all the salt and all the pollution that we are throwing into the streets. Uh, so it's, it's like contaminating ourselves mm -hmm. uh, with knowing it. But you're right, having shut down the city for uh, winter... Why not? Maybe Montreal is a little bit too big, but some part of the city we can do it uh, easily. Yeah. We need the, the, the la, la volonté, the desire, and the, 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 the decision makers to do it and to, co to convince uh, people that it's a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. yeah. I was listening to this episode of 99% um, Invisible, which is really one of the best podcasts ever. Um, and I think it was one of the newer episodes they were talking about the public bus system mm -hmm. and how do you convince people to drive less and you know take the bus more. So it seems like a good opportunity. Like if you take some roads and you make them, you know, the white streets, um, and build a, a much more accessible, robust bus system that's a lot more reliable, and you dedicate certain streets to that. And just, you know, if you can find a way to, like, encourage people to drive less over the winter even, you know, like, I feel like it's possible. I mean, like you said, you need the will and you need the infrastructure to do it, but it's not a crazy idea. No, no, it's really the will. We can yeah. invest in, uh, in pipelines. We, we give money to big businesses mm -hmm. like Bombardier. I'm happy to give money to Bombardier if they are making something very good of it, but we are never investing in collective transportation. Uh, I'm taking so many times the train to from Montreal to Toronto. Uh, we all have been in Europe, in Asia, and the system is way better for a modern city. And people are taking it because it's, as you said, Farah, it's efficient, it's there, it's on time, and it's I mean, it's yeah. reliable. And that's what we need. We need yeah. investment on it. It's actually the first thing that you hear from anyone that's gone to a European city for the first yeah. time, or even, you know, you went to Japan. Oh my God. I lived in the Netherlands briefly, like <laughs> coming back, you're like the trains, the yeah. trains there. Are, I mean, I guess in the Netherlands, they're not necessarily always on time, but they all run on wind power. They're entirely run on wind power. Oh, I didn't know that. In the Netherlands. That's yeah. So cool. Wow. That's Which, crazy. And it feels great to be, to be, you know, using a mode of transportation and knowing like, this is using only renewable energy. Yeah, That's, you know, a big thought that I've had for a long time. You know, you were saying, like, we invest in pipelines, we invest in these things. And, you know, you had also said, like, I don't care if, like, these companies make money. And it's true, I don't either. Um, why can't they invest in renewables instead? And let's just say that the energy that they derive from renewables is cheaper. They could still potentially charge us the same amount of money. I mean... Why not change? Uh, because uh, the government is not there yet. Uh, a business is uh, a big business. If they have opportunity to save money or to get, have credit, tax credits or stuff like that, or if they see an open market, they will do it. Solar panels are a good example of it. It was super expensive like 10 years ago, and now with the market, the open market, and people wanting this uh yeah so if you still have government uh governments who wants to invest in oil and gas industry 
or mining industry, like uh, the, the actual government. Quebec government that we have, uh, we are uh, part of a coalition for against uh, GNL Gazaduc in Saguenay-Lac-Saint-Jean, uh, and when you have the the, the the environmental minister of Quebec saying like, that's not that bad, you know, and we we the the, the company said clearly that this project of a pipeline is a pipeline coming from uh, Alberta and crossing the Ontario and uh, through the, 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 the Saguenay-Lac-Saint-Jean, where you have this habitat of the Belugas. I mean, this, this population of Belugas are dec decreasing every year. And uh, and the government of Quebec is not like, oh, the, the, the study is saying that, it, their study is saying that it's okay, it's not that bad, uh, good jobs for the region. But with experience and with the past, we know that uh, one industry region, uh, it's the worst thing uh, if the, the company decided to close. Yeah. They all often do it. Uh, we saw many examples of that in Quebec and in Canada when, oh, they have nothing left to extract or the market is not good enough. They close the business and people... The, the, the mono city mm -hmm. lost their, their jobs. So there's nothing good coming from it. But as the day that the government, the federal, the provincial, and you know the cities uh, will invest and believe and open doors for those renewables energy, well, hopefully it will change the... I, I, I believe that it will change the, 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 the situation. Mm. There was the tech frontier. What was yeah. it called? The the the. It was going to be the largest tar sands um, plant, yeah. right? Extraction plant ever, ever built. <laughs> yeah, it was going to lock us into decades of becoming probably the largest greenhouse gas emitter. Yeah, in the world, I think like the tar sands emits so many greenhouse gases, and that project was canceled. Yeah. Why was it canceled? Uh, the uh, social acceptability. Mm. Uh, well, first because uh, the, the the first nation opposition mm. and people didn't want it. And the government, actually, the actual liberal government, haven't was uh, studying the project. But Tech Frontier said in a, in a resume that if the population doesn't want us, we're out because we want acceptable project. We want well. That was part of yeah. the, the reason that they get out uh you know when you don't have the assessment or the uh, the, um, the the support of first nation because it's their land also mm. uh, you don't want to you don't want that uh, right. and ag again we are pointing a lot of businesses uh but we are also part of the problem because we are consuming a lot yeah, uh, yeah. and those little babies those iPhones and stuff are we um, yeah yeah we have to keep them more than two years I know it's true <laughs> I've had mine for I don't know like maybe four or five years now and Good. every so often um, certain people in my life who I love are like you should get a new phone and I'm like why? Yeah. <laughs> like this is more advanced than what it took people to go to the moon or so I hear on the internet on a meme. Uh, <laughs> it's fine. It'll last me. <laughs> I, I love those people too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There's also the rare, rare earth minerals that are used in, in a lot of technological devices that 
Um, I remember seeing a documentary about the extraction of rare earth minerals in the DRC, which mm. is a, a hotbed of certain very rare minerals that are needed for mm. um, smartphones and for laptops, whatever. Um, and I mean, that's a, another huge reason to, if you need to use this technology to try to uh, like extend its life as far as possible and avoid just getting a new one because it is what, you know, your right. cell phone provider's like telling you to do. Right. You suddenly don't need to take photos in 3D. No. Like, it's fine. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> but okay. <laughs> to come back to the Tech Frontier project, like, yeah. because it was canceled and, and in part it was canceled due to public pressure or a lack yeah. of public support. Do, does this feel like a sign that things are changing? Oh, yeah, that's good. Actually, it's good because when you cannot trust your own government and you see that the, the citizen or the group's mobilization and first nation mobilization is there, it, it, yeah, you, you can breathe, actually, because the energy to, to get to oppose those projects, it's... It, time-consuming, it's enormous, it's volunteering from many uh, mm. of the groups, citizen groups, we, we, we see that with JNL, Gazotuk, and, you know, it's your own backyard, mm -hmm. so yeah. you don't want those projects uh, taking place in your backyard, so yes, it's a huge victory for a community, for a collectivity, it brings back people together against something that, well, you, you don't want to fight mm -hmm. for, but yes, uh, it's a good, in those little wars, it's a good way to bring people together mm -hmm. uh, for their own community. Mm -hmm. mm -mm. Yeah, it is it is like encouraging. There's been this meme going around um, in support of the blockades that are, that are mm. supporting the Wet'suwet'en nation right now. Um, and the meme points out that social justice movements have never been popular. So if mm. you go back in time and you look at like the women's suffrage movement, yeah. you look at the gay rights movement, yeah. um, they always had a minority of support in the early days of those struggles. And there's these years of growing pains of trying to convince people, no, this is an important cause and it goes maybe against the status quo and people are less aware of why it's important. But an event like this encourages me to feel that maybe we're tipping the scale and that public support for renewable energy and against the oil and gas industry is actually growing to be a majority and that we're actually mm -hmm. going to see these changes happen a bit more frequently now. So, yeah, it's it's uh, encouraging. It is. And yeah. again, we we, you know, we have always this habit to put all First Nations all together in the same bucket. It's good to see them raising from that and showing that some of major communities are pro uh, some project like that. Others are against, but they still want their rights back and their, the, the acknowledgement of this genocide that mm -hmm. we, 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 we did to them. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's important to say genocide because when you are reading the story, uh, the history, oh, yeah. it was a clear and full genocide. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And again, my own personal opinion, I'm not talking for WWF here, <laughs> but we, we all share this feeling that it was mm -hmm. a huge genocide. And the UN also has recently called for what I'm like, now I'm like blanking on the exact wording of it, but there's like 
an international treaty on the rights of indigenous communities. Um, the UN has basically called out for all nations to respect it. Yeah. And this is a moment in which we're defining what that means for a government to respect the rights of indigenous communities. And hopefully there is also a shift happening in terms of how we respect those communities. Because like we said, it can change our societies for the better mm -hmm. to listen to indigenous communities, to learn from the way that they've aligned themselves with nature and protected the lands that they, they have lived on for generations upon generations. Yeah, totally. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about before we sign off? Far is there anything else that you wanted to ask about? Well, I feel like we could keep talking. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little sad that the conversation's wrapping up. Like we could do this for another like three hours. Um, but uh, no, I, I can't think of anything else in this particular moment. But thank you so much for, for joining us. But thank before you. I start to thank you, is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Oh, not, nothing coming in my <laughs> mind now, but raccoons are cool. Raccoon, uh, raccoons. Oh, it's true. <laughs> you do love raccoons. No, we, I wish we... I actually want to talk about raccoons because I don't trust them. <laughs> it's because they look like little bandits. I know, but I think... I feel like a raccoon could be like, look at me, I'm so cute. Just give me one popcorn kernel. And then like the moment that you get close enough, they'll like latch themselves onto your face like an alien. Wow. <laughs> you have great imagination. <laughs> so wait, have you ever had a like close interaction with a raccoon? Well, as any Montrealers, uh, I was on the Mont Royal. And it's funny because it's now... Um, uh, hot spot for uh, I was looking at Tourisme France Quebec and it was like ooh uh, go to uh, go see the uh, raccoons on the Mont Royal oh, no. in Montreal <laughs> and I was like oh really it's now a hot spot for tourism French tourism okay why not but the thing is that I know that well not everybody loves raccoon I love raccoons <laughs> I for the record you. yeah and uh, but the good thing is uh, the thing is that it's a good example of human interaction with nature and uh, what we are doing to nature. They are there eating in the garbage, mm -hmm. but they are super resilient. But normally they shouldn't be there, and um, it's always art. Uh, it's hurting my heart in some ways that they are super cute. Yes, they are super brilliant, mm -hmm. and uh, well, you do know, you do remember those um, seabird studies uh, that we opened their oh, stomach yeah. and they were full of plastic. Well, mm -hmm. it's probably the same case with uh, with the raccoon in the Malhaya because they are eat eating everything. Mm -hmm. So it's. In some ways, it's showing to us like the the bad the bad habits that we have on uh, on nature and on urban development. Yet, eventually, we we should uh, bring back corridors and green corridors and blue mm -hmm. corridors. But it's a for me, it's the best example with squirrels that we we don't know how to manage a city uh, with nature. Yeah. Hmm. The name for raccoon in French is one of my favorite French words. Raton laveur. <laughs> it's because they're always washing things, right? Have you ever seen that video of the the raccoon that has like, he gets like a piece of um, cotton candy. Papa. Yeah, co <laughs> cotton candy. And he's like, well, I'll just wash this like anything else. And then it disappears. And he's like, well, where did it go? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> thanks to Farah. Farah sent me that video and I was just like looping it. It's so good. It is really cute. Also, another favorite <laughs> raccoon video of mine is the one where there's like um, some cats crowded around like a a dish full of cat food in a garage and this raccoon just like sneaks up to it and the cats are like what are you doing in here he's like nothing and then he just like buries his head in this like in this dish of food and gorges himself with it and then runs away they really have nimble fingers they can like grab onto things yeah and they're brilliant i mean uh, let's talk about resilience those guys are resilient. it's true okay you've changed my mind i guess i i lived in toronto briefly and the raccoons there are very aggressive okay not not like aggressive mean but they'll they will basically come up to you and be like give me stuff you know and (laughs) i was like i don't know if i can trust you i and also their little bandit masks makes them seem like they're hiding something. <laughs> they just need green space. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, they give right. me something. Green space. Yeah, that's what they want. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm glad we got to that. Thank you very, very much for taking the time. To oh, thanks to you. Yeah, thank it was you. really a huge pleasure to come. And you are very aware. I'm surprised, you know, so many things. So it's nice to speak with you and to talk with you about uh, those issues. Those great challenges. Let's do it again sometime. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, yes. You've been listening to House Nine's Art and Humanity podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe wherever podcasts are available. House Nine is a collaborative graphic design studio. Working with local and international artists, researchers, nonprofit organizations, and cultural institutions, we develop dynamic projects in all areas of interactive and print design. House Nine would like to acknowledge our design studio is located on unceded indigenous territory, and all members of the studio are settlers, whether descendants of colonizers or new immigrants. This island is called Jojage in the language of the Kanyokehaga and Munyang in the language of the Anishinaabe. In English, this island is known as Montreal, and in French, Montréal. This island has and continues to be a meeting place for indigenous communities, as well as generations of settlers from all around the globe who have made a home here. As settlers, we must acknowledge that we benefit greatly from the colonial laws that have shamefully persecuted the indigenous people of this land. As we continue to live on this land, whether unable or unwilling to return to our original homelands, We as individuals want to decolonize ourselves and our actions. We are deeply indebted to the indigenous people of the colonial territory of so-called Canada for their continued stewardship of this land. As a studio, we are learning to act in solidarity with indigenous peoples in our work and in our day-to-day lives.